0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise.
1: Hello, Insecurities listeners. Kurt Wolf here with a special episode of the Insecurities Podcast. On the last episode, I sat down with CFTC Commissioner Caroline Pham to talk about the CFTC's regulatory and enforcement mandate, the role of CFTC enforcement, and the risk of what she calls examination by enforcement. It was a fascinating discussion, one of my personal favorite episodes, and I encourage you to go back and listen to episode 104 to hear the conversation. After talking about CFTC enforcement, Commissioner Pham was kind enough to hang around to chat with me for 20 minutes or so about the CFTC's role and priorities in the crypto regulatory landscape. Definitely a hot topic, and we want to share that conversation with you today on this bonus episode of the Insecurities podcast. Just as a reminder for all of our listeners, the views Commissioner Pham expresses on the podcast are her own as a commissioner and do not necessarily represent that of the CFTC or any other commissioner. And with that, I hope you enjoy the conversation. So we've been talking about enforcement priorities. We've been talking about some areas for structural improvement, perhaps at, at the CFTC or, or the way that they're executing on their on their regulatory mandate, something that we've danced around a little bit is this idea of of crypto. We've mentioned it in a couple different respects, including you said I think a third of the CFTC's enforcement actions last year were crypto related, whether that's cases that are fraudy or things like failure to register. There's a lot of that in there. So, want to hear more from you about where the CFTC fits in the crypto regulatory picture, right? I mean, there's, I think it's fair to say there's some jockeying for position with respect to crypto regulation in DC. And uh, I think some came out of the gates faster than others and and tried to really get a lot of the space. I, I guess I'm just wondering, what is your view on where the CFTC fits
2: in the mix? This is a hot topic. So something that I, besides talking about remediation and undertakings, I also talk about how do we regulate digital assets? And what do we even mean when we talk about digital assets? So Maybe I'll start out big and then kind of narrow down. Great. So to me, when I think about digital assets, what do I mean? It's just a digital representation of a, of a thing. And, and what is that thing? That thing can be money. Mm -hmm. or it can be some other kind of asset. The other kind of asset can be financial, or it can be non-financial. So if you just want to abstract it out and think about it in the biggest, broadest way, that's what it is. The token part, the crypto part, is just a technology wrapper around this underlying asset. And by the way, a digital asset, it's a digital right. It's the right to own something, to use something, or to transfer something. So I think starting with that, big picture lens really helps then kind of drilling down because obviously the legal and regulatory frameworks are going to apply are going to be different if it's it's money or financial asset versus if it's a non-financial asset and if it's financial activity versus commercial activity. And that's really the dichotomy that I see here is that we need to draw a line in looking at the application of this new blockchain or distributed ledger technology, we need to be able to first start with being like, is this being used for a financial activity or is it being used for some kind of commercial purpose? And we have very comprehensive legal and regulatory frameworks for both realms. Um, Okay, let's talk about the financial activities. So you have heard the global regulatory community from the FSB all the way down, say, same activity, same risk, same regulation. And fundamentally, that's true. Our laws and regulations that have evolved around banking and markets, it's been for hundreds of years, very hard lessons that have been learned around the way. And we should not allow some kind of what I call shadow banking 3.0 to pop up. We have to bring financial activities within the regulatory perimeter. This is like a no-brainer. It's always surprising to me when people think that you can do banking, but not be subject to banking regulations. (laughs) making sense. And it's also funny to me when people keep giving like new names to old things, and it's like, no, that's just securities lending, or that's repo. Even if you give it these fancy new names, it's actually what you're talking about. So I think there's a lot of trying to look through the hype and the froth and, and just call something what it is. These are all financial instruments or, or different types of structured products that we've seen in the past. So then in the United States, it's very straightforward. There's an awful lot of the tokens that are out there that are some kind of banking or payment product. And that's going to be subject to the federal banking regulators, the Fed, the OCC, and the FDIC. And we do have a dual banking system in the United States. We recognize we have federal and we also have state. We have state chartered banks and there's a very complex system around our dual banking system, but it's important to our federalist form of government. And so that's what we have. And so I do fundamentally think that these issues around payment stablecoins, for example, it's going to get worked out through the lens of some kind of like banking or a payment regulation. It's going to be consistent with how the U.S. has typically approached this. And it'll be interesting to see if this is something that the FSOC can do through like a systemic designation for payment clearing and settlement services or whether or not it's going to happen through legislation. Okay, what are the other kinds of tokens that are out there? There's a tremendous number of tokens that are out there for some type of capital raising purpose in the securities bucket, and you're going to be subject to securities laws and regulations. And so, yes, if you are engaging in activity that is for some kind of capital raising, some type of like investment activity, then that's the SEC is going to have the oversight of that. There's a lot of the trading activity that is out there that to me looks like some kind of derivative. And so we do have, through Dodd-Frank and the other laws that we've talked about in the past, we do have a framework for how we divide up derivatives between the CFTC and the SEC, Dodd-Frank being the biggest one. And that gets applied. And lately it's been happening in the courts and kind of on a one-off basis. And and that's important, right? It's important that we do have judge-made law. I think that is a very important check that the federal courts provide over the tendency of administrative agencies to self-aggrandize themselves. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. Like that's the And then what's left over in the financial activity space? I'm not sure what's left over in the financial activity space. I think you have, I mean, that's why in the United States, we have our banking regulators, we have the SEC, and we have the CFTC. The commercial activities question is actually much more exciting and interesting to me. And I also think that's where Being at the CFTC, we might have a unique perspective to bring to it. Because like I said, we're at the intersection of the real economy and the financial markets. And so when you think about the fact that we are on the path to a digital economy, I mean, we're already in a digital economy, right? We're in a digital economy that's becoming more and more digital. And people are ascribing real value to non-tangible things. Kids want to buy things in games more than they want to go to the mall, if we still have malls and buy something at the ball, right? So I think we need to understand and appreciate that. And all of this discussion around um, Web3 is very exciting. Uh, I have worked on and I've given a speech on the metaverse uh, to um, European policymakers and central bankers and finance ministers and just the continuing move towards virtual worlds, spending mm-hmm. our time in the physical world world obviously but also having this layer that is digital on top of it you go to an art museum you're looking at a painting you scan a qr code that's adding a digital layer to your physical experience that's a version of the metaverse so there's a lot of other legal and regulatory frameworks that could apply there's a lot of other regulators that could be implicated in the united states so the federal trade commission's a really obvious one and when you're talking about the internet and this maybe being the next generation internet maybe we're talking about like the fcc but, you know, look, you're talking about commercial, trade, international, data, privacy, IP, so many other types of laws and regulations that are applicable. And, and financial regulation is not a panacea for everything. So I am actually quite surprised that when people are using NFTs for purely commercial applications like customer engagement mm-hmm. or ticketing or rewards programs or to do digital twins or to do supply chain or logistics or electronic records or any number of things, why on earth would we apply a financial regulatory lens to what is clearly commercial activity? Mm -hmm. So I've been very encouraged by some of the recent efforts in the administration to create, I think, a task force under the Department of Commerce to further look at some of these issues. And so I think uh, that's good. I think the more attention we can spend on drawing the line between financial and commercial activity is important. And that's why as the sponsor of the Global Markets Advisory Committee, which is an independent federal advisory committee that the CFTC has, we've, I've directed them. I've asked them to look at, through my digital asset Markets subcommittee, recommendations for the regulation of NFTs and utility tokens. And then otherwise, the other stuff, I just think that's tokenization of real assets. We're just talking mm-hmm. about tokenized financial products, tokenized right. securities,
1: so on. Interesting. So, I think, I mean, it sounds like I'm going to try to, to summarize that a little bit, but it sounds like, sort of, depending on the token or de- depending on the digital asset, depending on the use case, it could fall into different buckets, right? Maybe it's within the CFTC's mandate. Maybe I think you said some probably are squarely within the, C- the SEC's mandate, but it could be a, a, lot. A, a banking or a prudential regulator. It could be something else altogether if it's purely sort of commercial use, right? I think. Maybe other people are seeing that too. And that's why the markets are sort of clamoring for some clarity or some guidance. I mean, again, I usually am talking about the SEC and we hear complaints all the time that the SEC hasn't given adequate guidance. They haven't exercised their authority to issue a rule or an, an amendment to an existing rule <laughs> relating to digital assets. We we see a bunch of enforcement and and that's a whole other thing, but no sort of clear guidance from the SEC and I know that this is something that's important to you. You've mentioned it today on the podcast, you've mentioned it in some of your remarks or speeches before that this sort of need to have clear r- rules of the road. And so I mean I'm wondering what has the CFTC done to clarify its position or the app the applicability of its rules. To crypto, right? So for me, if I'm thinking SEC, like what is a security? With respect to what is a, a commodity, is there some kind of definition or something that we could use as an umbrella to capture some number of tokens or digital assets?
2: I'm smiling because you said, What is a commodity or what is the definition of a commodity? And everything is a commodity. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is a commodity <laughs> except for onions and movie box office receipts. I'm I'm really taking some liberties and and doing a shorthand well, here. I think but... that captures
1: all of the tokens, so we can just shut this down.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, well, secu- securities are commodities, yeah. but the SEC has exclusive jurisdiction over securities, so that's kind of the the unique thing, right, with the right. U.S. framework, which is uh, our uniquely American system. So, commodities include um, goods, articles, services rights, interests, maybe something else that I'm missing, but there's like a whole, so it's like everything. What has the CFTC done? I think the CFTC really started from a very pragmatic place. I actually first started getting into learning about Bitcoin and looking at Bitcoin when I was at the CFTC in 2013. Mm -hmm. The Bitcoin Foundation came in and basically was like, are you my mother? Do you (laughs) regulate us? Commissioner Peirce used that line in one of her um, speeches, which I really appreciated. And we looked at it and actually what's really funny is that the way that we looked at it back then is pretty much the same way that people still look at it today so bitcoin could be a store of value it also could be a means of exchange Mm -hmm. so as a store of value as like a thing that has value sounds like a commodity as a means of exchange that sounds like a payment network Mm -hmm. feds probably got some Something to do with that, right? And state regulators. And that's still kind of the way that people look at it, right? And what else did the CFTC do? The CFTC came out in 2015 in a speaking order and said that Bitcoin was a commodity. And it's continued to lead the way in assessing and looking at tokens and putting out speaking orders over that. So Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin have been listed as commodities in some of our speaking orders. We've also been very active in using our global jurisdiction to go after crypto derivative trading platforms. So if I had to just like sum up a lot of our recent crypto enforcement actions, it's and this includes the DeFi ones, it basically is that if you are some kind of trading platform anywhere in the world and you're offering a derivative, whether it's like crypto or not crypto, and you've got US persons involved, then you probably have to register with us whether it's as a futures exchange or a swap execution facility, or maybe you're actually like a broker or some other things like that. Very broad. I think people do not realize how broad the CFTC's jurisdiction is again. And that was Dodd-Frank, right? People trying to solve the causes of the financial crisis and ensure that we never had such a threat to global financial stability and the global financial system ever again. I mean, that's that's pretty strong. So mm-hmm. we've had a number of these fair to register cases, some of the biggest crypto exchanges in the world, obviously, and some of these other types of crypto intermediaries. One of the things that I think is interesting and that I've called for in a regulatory approach is I've said that we need to make sure that the words that we're using actually reflects the market structure. So a lot of people say that in some of these These tokens, particularly like the sort of alternative tokens or junk tokens, they trade like emerging markets FX, very thin liquidity, very volatile, and the market structure kind of looks like FX as well. So when you think about it, I don't know why we call them exchanges, because some of them are, are, maybe a lot of them, are not actually exchanges at all. It's not an all-to-all central limit order book with anonymous matching and execution. It's actually a dealer Mm -hmm. who's making markets on its own platform. So it's like a single dealer platform. It's like a broker dealer with an ATS or something else. And the thing is is that around dealer registration regimes, we have lots of rules and requirements for conflicts of interest and governance and all of the other potential misconduct or abuses that you could see, market conduct standards that you should have for dealers. And so that's why I actually think for if we're talking about a retail Spot crypto regulatory framework, then I think what the CFTC currently has over retail foreign exchange dealers is the right model. It's uh, together with the NFA, which is like our version of FINRA, and it's registration, oversight, disclosures, reporting, supervision, um, capital, uh, risk management, and we should take something that's existed and been in place since 2008 or earlier and take what works and use it so i actually think that we need some kind of retail spot crypto dealer registration regime and it can look a lot like the one that the ctc has right now for retail FX, because it's the same kinds of abuses fraud scams and so on that we see and we've been bringing these enforcement actions for a long time and the talking about fx that's why through the global markets advisory committee i've got a work stream on tokenized asset markets. And so kind of, like I said before, irrespective of what the underlying is, equities, fixed income, currencies, commodities, the requirements for market conduct and market abuse are sort of the same around the world. So just like how people came together to create a global FX code, Mm -hmm. I'd like to see my subcommittee be able to propose recommendations for industry standards and best practices for tokenized asset markets. And so that's going to include... Uh, taxonomy, but it'll also include pre-trade execution and post-trade requirements, as well as governance risk and control frameworks.
1: Okay. So we're thinking again about potentially some important structural changes, but things that are all, it's not necessarily new, right? We're sort of applying old concepts to new technologies, to, to new innovation, Along those lines, something that you've talked about is a pilot program, right? You recently called for the CFTC to create a pilot program for digital assets specifically. Would love to hear a little bit more about what you're thinking about. What are you proposing? And what what is the gap that you're trying to fill with this pilot program?
2: So one of the things that I've been doing, and, and this is a really great segue because it is part of the work that my GMAC and other CFTC advisory committees, I believe, are, are thinking about when they work through the issues in the digital asset space, is how do we take a proactive approach to creating safeguards around this space to ensure that it's within the regulatory perimeter and that we are preventing, again, fraud, manipulation, and abuse? And so to me, this is very straightforward because in the private sector, you often do proofs of concept. You do pilots all the time to try something new and to do it in like a safe space where it's not going to, where you can adequately control it. And so that's what a pilot program is. And so since last year, I started thinking about how do we have a true US regulatory sandbox for digital asset markets? Because we've not really had that before the Mm -hmm. different federal agencies. And I know because I used to engage with them, different federal agencies have sort of these innovation offices, which are really for engagement and outreach and sometimes education and coordination, but it's not a real sandbox. And it's also really hard to have a sandbox when you're an enforcement agency, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, (laughs) our rules are not really built that way. I think it would be easier to have a sandbox if you were uh, like a prudential regulator. Mm. Um, So in thinking about how could we design it within like the CFTC's regulatory framework. So last year when I was doing my international listening tour and promoting engagement for the GMAC and the GMAC's agenda, I spoke with probably at least a dozen plus jurisdictions with like finance ministries, central bankers, policymakers about how do they approach innovation? How do they approach innovation as a matter of industrial policy for their economies? And what types of innovation facilitators do they use? And it was very fascinating to sort of take all that together and use those as learnings to think about how we apply that here in the US. So I worked on it for a year. And then I did my speech recently calling for that pilot program. But I also went back and looked at, at our own experience here in the US, both at the CFTC and the SEC. The SEC does pilots a little bit more frequently than the CFTC. The last time the CFTC did a pilot was, I think, in the maybe the 90s. Maybe there was one in the 2000s. But, you know, agricultural trade options, that was in the 90s. And it's a really Straightforward and pragmatic way to deal with innovations in new products or new market structures, new technology. And so that's what it is. It would be time limited, it would be to support the development of compliant digital asset commodity markets, and also to look at tokenization in our existing markets. And I think that just the same way we did in the past, you had registration eligibility requirements. You had product terms and product or contract terms, uh, minimum financial resource requirements, risk management requirements, disclosure requirements, uh, reporting requirements. It's all very straightforward. And so for a year or so, you can test it out, you can gather data, and then you can make an informed approach as to whether or not we should adopt this change to a new product or a change in market structure or a new technology or not. And it's, it's a safe way to experiment. And it's a safe way to promote responsible innovation and fair competition, which is another one of the CFTC's mm-hmm. mandates. We mm-hmm. have a lot of mandates. But to do so in a safe way and to do so in a way where we are absolutely ensuring market integrity and protecting the retail and institutional public.
1: Are you getting any traction on that proposal? Is this something you think that we're, we're going to see in, in, in the next fiscal year?
2: I am. I actually have been really pleased with the reaction all around Washington to this proposal. And there's a couple different ways you can do it, right? There's like different themes. Like I just recently was speaking about tokenization for collateral management and how innovations can drive ways to have greater capital efficiency. So there, if you're just talking about how do we look at from a risk management perspective using this new technology... Look at operational risks and so on. This would be a safe way for our institutional markets to use tokenization and not to be worried that we're going to do examination by enforcement and come show up and ask them for a seven-figure, eight-figure fine for Bitcoin and Ether. um, If people want to look at DeFi market structures, that could be a very interesting way to safely explore a DeFi market structure. And again, not have us show up with an enforcement action to, for failure to register because they will have come in to do some type of registration and oversight, some kind of limited pilot with us. So a pilot program is not going to protect you from, again, if you are lying, cheating, or stealing, right. we are coming after you, right? Pilot program doesn't protect you from that. But for those good actors, people genuinely trying to understand uh, how to adapt to innovation, it's a good approach.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for engaging with us and our listeners. And thanks again for coming on the Insecurities Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, CFTC Commissioner Caroline Pham. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Hit us up on social media with your thoughts and comments or topics you'd like us to explore on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation, you can find me at enforce underscore update, and you can find Chris at Ekimoff CPA. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Insecurities wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as host Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.